0: What an incredible podcast with an incredible human being. Robert Greene, author of The 48 Laws of Power, has just released a special edition of The 48 Laws of Power. It's a book unlike any I've seen before. Uh, First, the design of the book is, it's like a living sculpture. And of course, if, if any of you have read The 48 Laws of Power, I'd encourage you to reread it. There's thousands of stories in there. It's like the history of the world through the the eyes of someone learning about power and persuasion and, and seduction and war and stories from all over the world, all over history. It's such an incredibly deep book. I've probably read it more than a dozen times. And uh, Robert and I have a, a great discussion about it. And also we start off with him giving me a advice on my next book. And so that was very interesting. You know, Robert Greene is one of my heroes as a, as a writer and for him to, to listen to him, give me advice on writing is really wonderful as well. So hope you enjoy this, this conversation. And here's Robert Greene, author of the forty the special edition also of the 48 Laws of Power just released 25th anniversary edition. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Playing tournament chess, where I was a chess master, I was after a twenty-five year break. I was starting again, and my goal was as an older person in my fifties now, trying to reach the level that I was at before. And it's been a a fascinating experience. It's been unbelievable, the adventures. I want to hear
1: about it. I'd like to talk about it. You know, I think it's something I can explore, as we talked about last time, through the lens of my book, Mastery. You know, I'd love to hear more about it. So let's definitely talk about that.
0: I mean, I definitely reviewed your book, Mastery, as well. And and a lot of it did make me think of your book, because just engaging in the idea of a quest has put me on this path to adventure. Whether or not I succeed in the quest is still unknown, but I've kind of improved as a person in the pursuit of this of this you know far off goal. So it's been very interesting. Well, I, I think just doing it, you've you've already succeeded.
1: So uh, I don't think you have to gauge that or measure it by whether you become a grandmaster or whatever the stages are. It's more the fact that you're doing it that you're taking this, this journey, you know, whatever, I don't like that word, but you're doing that. It's already successful. It's already something that's going to bring a lot of meaning to your life and teach you a lot. So I don't think there's any, any metric that you need to use to decide whether
0: it's been successful or not. That's, that's interesting. I've been grappling with this because I feel like people won't be interested unless I achieve the goal. Um, But maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. What people are you talking about? Well, that's a good question too. I I think my audience would, in part, be, in part, be older people who want to return to something they love and pursue it, even when everyone tells them it's impossible. And another audience would be improving chess players. And so that's the audience. I don't think I can. Well, but maybe that's not true because I have so many. I mean, I've had, I've had dinner with the world champion in Norway. I've been, you know, in Amsterdam for. Very special tournaments. I started writing for what was when I was a kid. My favorite chess magazine, the Premier Chess Magazine, on the planet, asked me to write for them. Like it's been unbelievable all the things that have happened. I can't even believe that you're saying something like you you don't know whether it's going to be a success or not, and whether
1: people who are already players of chess will appreciate it. You're, you're beyond that point already, James. It's I can't I can't understand what you're trying to say there because. You know, you've you've had these amazing experiences meeting the Norwegian chess champion. Is that is that uh, Magnus?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah Magnus that, you know, that's
1: already incredible. You've been to tournaments. You've written articles. You're developing your brain. You're going to write a book about this for sure. Yeah, it's going to be an amazing book. And if you ever want me to do any help for you on that, because I can already see the
0: intense value out of it. No, uh, I would love to. Maybe separately. But, have a discussion with you. I would really value your advice on this. But, you know, when you get
1: older, the brain starts to kind of, doesn't turn to mush, but it starts getting rigid. You start developing patterns of thinking that get rather set in their ways. And I know I deal with that every day and I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. And something where you can exercise your brain, where you can feel synapses are forming and you're making some progress. For people in their 50s, Even in their 40s, it's an incredible lesson. And then for those, you know, people in their 20s and younger are obviously going to be the best chess players in the world. And I talked about why that is so in mastery. In fact, you know, they're usually in their late 20s or early 30s. And once you get past that point, you burn out because you need that kind of energy and you need a kind of stamina and certain things that that you're missing. So it's not going to, your book wouldn't necessarily have value for that that crowd but for anybody else for for even for me i i i would just absolutely eat it up
0: that's so interesting to hear because i've been really grappling with this issue and i have achieved some milestones for instance in georgia i'm the senior chess champion of georgia so for over 50 i've I've won that two years in a row that's
1: that's incredible
0: yeah and so i've competed in the national senior championship and did very well and and but what's very interesting is my volatility is much greater than when I was younger so I've been able to beat much higher ranked players than when I was younger but I've also been losing to much lower ranked players than I would lose to when I was younger so it's like That's my volatility you know, is really insane
1: these are the kinds of things that you have to write down take notes and analyze and figure out why that would be i mean I'm sure if I thought about it or I were in your head I would try and I could figure out why that is but that is the case, but things like that that stand out, little anomalies like that, as they say, are very eloquent. They would say a lot about the, your brain and and as as it ages, you know. I, I would think that it's it's a a function. I'm just throwing this out. I could be wrong. Yeah. A function, of the ability to focus and concentrate. And so, when you're younger, even though young people are so distracted by social media, but if you just subtract all that. They have much greater powers of concentration than we do. As you get older, your mind gets fragmented and you lose that ability to focus very deeply for longer periods of time. And also the stamina that's involved in deep levels of focus. So if I were to you know, randomly speculate, which might be just total BS, it's that your ability to focus deeply for long periods of time with requisite energy has degraded with age, and there's really nothing you can do about that. And you, you
0: probably will get better at it, but that might might be the reason. I think that's right. Like what I was thinking recently is that it's directly related to. I never used to think about how tired I was or whether I slept eight hours, but now if I don't sleep that eight hours and then I play chess the next day, if I'm in a four hour game, particularly later in the afternoon, I'm in, I'm in big trouble if I'm against a kid because. I will lose focus during the game. Yeah, that's totally that's totally natural. And
1: so, you know, part of your of your strategy, if you want to get even better, is to work on that and to develop your stamina. I don't know how you would do that through through exercises. First of all, building your energy levels up, which is a physical thing, which you'd have to do almost like kind of like running a marathon, just building that up, and then your physical your mental focus. You know, athletes deal with that a lot, and a lot of athletes have come to use things like meditation, which I'm a firm believer in, which help you kind of empty the mind and can help you focus because what distracts you is having all that buzzing energy going on in your head, and the power to empty that mind is very, very powerful, but it's a a muscle you have to develop, and meditation could be a very powerful tool in that sense.
0: and it is, I, I mean, what's happened in this journey is that I've had to develop all around as a person. I've had to meditate. I've had to, I've never had a program of exercise before. Now I exercise every day. Uh, I've had to really work on my sleep. I've had to work on my nutrition. I've completely eliminated any drinking or any processed foods, anything that would slow me down and i've had to improve as a and i've had to deal with loss like it's hard to lose uh, Jay, this is
1: going to be a fantastic book it's going to be a, what have you started writing it what's going on just notes i haven't started writing it you got to get going on that and i, I want to urge you to start that process like this coming year is the year that you're going to at least write a good portion of that book because um it'll be an ongoing thing. And then maybe two years down the line, you will update it with, you know, more progress. But right now you're at this stage where all these great things are going on. You've got to start, you got to start thinking about
0: it. Yeah, you're right. And I've been keeping track of all the adventures along the way. It's been, it's been really nonstop. And particularly as I'm entering this field now as an accomplished person in other fields. So people know me now in these tournaments in a different way. And it's just been a a fascinating experience, although sometimes very depressing one, uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard to spend four hours and then, and then lose four hours, like focusing so much, concentrating so much, and then a simple slip and you, and you lose and it happens frequently. Really? Yeah the psychology right now for me 50% of it is mindset yeah and it's difficult never used well, to be ast- mindset
1: well athletes when they lose you know it's a very common phenomenon in fact a, a baseball hitter is going to lose you know 95% of the time um they have to immediately they have to deal with this in a very immediate sense because that's their livelihood and the main thing they do is if they're successful is let go of it right away you know don't hang on to that feeling of i lost because it's going to carry over and you're going to de- be developing these little glitches in your brain where every time you're at a critical moment in a, in a chess match the little voice will pop up that little hitch in your head will will make you trip on your own your own negativity and so it's yeah. very important to release that sense of loss okay you can't repress it. I'm not saying that. that. That's not functional either. But don't let it sit in you. Okay, so you lost this afternoon. Kind of steam over it through the night. Think about it. Take notes. Analyze why you lost. And then let go of it completely. You have to develop that power. But the best thing to do whenever you have a failure or a setback is to write about it. Take notes. You don't want it sitting in your head. The act of writing makes it an object, it objectifies it, it gets it outside and onto paper. And it's an excellent form of releasing. So it's not stuck in your brain, you're not thinking over and over. And also, it's a good way to analyze why you lost in a detached way without emotion, being emotional, going, if I w- if I had only done this move instead of that move, the whole game would have turned on that. Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I think of it? Learning lessons and letting go is is going to help you immensely in that sense.
0: It, it's so funny that you're, you're hitting it dead on. And it's interesting because I never did this when I was younger, but I asked that exact question that you just said, which is not exactly what was the mistake because I know what the mistake was, but why am I the sort of person who made this mistake? And there's deep, deeper reasons now than I ever realized. Like sometimes for instance, I'll go for an attack when, when it's not necessary. And I realized like I used to do this when I was a day trader, I was 20 years ago, I day traded and I would go for very small profits. I would eagerly take small profits, almost as if I was a, couldn't trust myself that, that my advantage was real. So I would go for a quick win when I had a small advantage, not trusting that I could build up this advantage for the long term. And there's something in me that, that goes for tries to go for quick gains. Well, I
1: remember, now I have to qualify this as, I played chess when I was a kid, but I haven't played since then, and I I have absolutely zero expertise in it. I've written about great chess people, players in some of my books, but when I researched Bobby Fischer, for example, um, I noticed that he had crunched so many kind of patterns of games, right, that when he reached a level, where he could think many moves in advance. And so the game for him was to be able to think 20, 30 moves in advance. I don't know how many it was in his head. And so he could afford to lose things, to lose a piece here and there, knowing in the overall scheme of things, he had a plan and he was going to realize it. So he wasn't caught up in the moment. He wasn't getting, oh, the the player made a mistake. I have to hit on it because he knew that that could, mess up his whole way his whole strategy even though you have to be in the moment you can't just be completely in your you know going by your plan but the idea is you want to have a longer term the players that can play a longer term that are not thinking just of the immediate move but five or six moves in ahead advance are going to be the ones that that are going to be true masters so when you make that attack move you think, oh, it's re- you're ready for it, but you're not thinking
0: deeply enough about the consequences
1: of where it will leave you.
0: You're absolutely right. Like, like, like Fisher had, and let's take Magnus Carlsen as a great example too, they have immense confidence in their ability to slowly, incrementally strangle their opponent. Like they, yeah. don't, they don't feel a need, I've got to smash him now or else I'm going to lose. They yeah. don't feel that.
1: That's, and it gives you a psychological advantage.
0: Like people who
1: sat down to play against Bobby Fischer knew that he was capable of that and it already made them fearful. They weren't maybe conscious of it, but playing like Magnus Carlsen, you're already like you're already intimidated, you're already losing before the battle begins, to quote Sun Tzu, because you know he has that intimidation factor. It's part of his reputation. I'm not saying you could build that, but if you could get some of that, I think it would really really make you reach another level.
0: Yeah, I I have to work on this part. We're here to talk about the new special edition of the 10th year anniversary is it the 10th year anniversary of 48 laws of power. I think f- no, it's, it's 25th. like 25th. Yeah. Did you get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I have to say like the way you, when you, first off the gold sides, the, the, the new cover, the photo that appears when you, um, bend the pages, when you, when you bend the book a little bit, the photo of you that appears, I mean, it's just a beautifully done book. And it reminds me that you, before you even wrote your first book, you were a book packager. This new edition is like a work of art. It is a packaged book. We'll talk about the writing, but the book itself is like well, a sculpture. I have I have to
1: correct you on one thing there. So first of all, for the audience that doesn't know, I actually did work with a book packager. I'm not the packager. I'm very visually oriented and I have a lot to do with the design of a book, but I work with a very brilliant man, a Dutchman named Joost Elfers, who is actually a book packager. And the thing is, As the twenty-fifth anniversary, his name is Yost. He wanted to create a special edition. We both agreed on that, and so he went back to eighteenth-century technology because we're both kind of fascinated by the history of books, and we've talked about it. And the publishing business has become really kind of depressing visually, aesthetically. Mm. Books don't look very good. They're kind of mass-produced. They're junky. They fall apart quickly. Hardback books are. Very poorly bound, et cetera, et cetera. It's just kind of a junk culture, whereas books used to be objects, used to be something like, wow, it's beautiful. You know, if you collect old books like I have, even books from the 20s and 30s, like modern library editions, they're just beautiful. The covers are beautiful. It's just, and they feel so nice in your hand. So, Joost's idea was to go back to an old technology. And he discovered that in the 18th century, they had a way of doing the edges, where you could flip the edge and create an image. I thought, this is fantastic. So what he did do is, when you flip in one direction with your thumb, you see a picture of me, a rather young picture, I must admit, because <laughs> it's supposed to it's a picture of me when the book came out. Um, and then if you flip the other direction, you see an image of Niccolò Machiavelli, who is kind right. of my mentor, the guiding spirit of the 48 Laws of Power. And then he put it in a very kind of nice, uh, you know, vegan leather cover. And he created a logo for the 48 that's like kind of a new symbol for it. This is, I can't take credit for that. I approved of it. And I, you know, and, and I, I said, this is a great idea. But we have to give credit to this man, Joost Delfers. If you know anything about Dutch people, they are brilliant at design and they have great sense of visuals. So I was very fortunate to have him because he designed the cover of my first three books and the layout of it. So I can't really take credit for it. But this book is now available. It's a limited edition. We've only printed 25,000 copies. And after that, there won't be any more sales. So it will be a collector's item. It's a little bit pricey, $100. But if you're a big fan of the book and you want that kind of collector's item that will be worth a lot maybe in the future, I think it's, it's worth looking
0: into. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for almost 10 years. So I'm now at that point where I'm seeing a lot of 10th year anniversary editions of books that I first did interviews 10 years ago. And yes, maybe there's, they're expanded editions, but you really, I can't say it enough. Like you really elevated the art form of designing the book and you and your, and your partner in this, yeah, I will give full credit to, and. It really was inspirational how you did this. I'm curious. Somebody showed me a book the other day. I'm curious if you've seen it. It's called Arate, Arete, A-R-R-E-T-E. Oh, Brian Johnson, of course, of course, yes. And it's got like 400 chapters in it. It, it, all, it made me think of you a little bit because it also has some element of design. But even the original edition of 48 Laws of Power, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, not the special edition, but I, I also, I, I went, since I, I've been on the road for two weeks, so I went and bought, this, um, just the other day, but you have like stories on the left side, stories on the right side, stories in the middle. Like I've never seen a book written with so like the form itself is telling a story. And we've talked about this before, but even the original edition I felt was very much a work of art. It's how I've always, what I love about reading is that sometimes it's not just the story that's important, but the way the story is presented that itself is part of the overall narrative of the book. And I felt that was the case with with your book. I just want to also comment that. And again, we've talked a lot about the the ideas in the 48 laws of power, but I read this book fairly frequently. I don't, I won't say I read the whole thing, uh, you know, once a year, but I'll read like every few months, I'll pick it up and read a few chapters or read at least one chapter. Because uh, there's so many, so much depth in this, so many stories, so many ideas. It's like you, the, you, have, you sh- show so many historical stories that it's like a history of the world through the concept of power and manipulation and persuasion. I mean, did you think about it in that context? I thought the book should have like
1: a lot of books are just kind of one dimensional, in my opinion. They're very academic, they're very dry, they have kind of one simple idea that they're trying to express. But we're animals, we live through our senses. We're not just brain, just not intellects, we also live through our senses. And power is something that isn't just an intellectual phenomenon. It deals with nonverbal communication, it deals with visuals, it deals with sounds, it's a whole world, it's a whole language, right? And and It's also a major theme of it is seduction, the ability to get people to lower their normal resistance to you so you can influence them. And so the way I conceive the book is it's not just the text that matters, it's how it looks and how it's structured. So when you tell a story, as everybody knows who watches a film, or when you're a child and you hear a fairy tale or some fable. You're immediately kind of drop. You, 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 the moment you hear someone start to tell a story, you relax. You're interested. You're focusing. You want to know what happens. You want to know what's next, et cetera. Stories are powerful in themselves because they draw people into your, into your environment and they make them lose their normal defensive quality. So I, my idea was I'm not going to hit people over the head with theories about power, et cetera, et cetera. How boring. How stupid. I'm going to draw you in through stories about people throughout history. I'm going to make you identify with these characters, like you identify with a character in a movie. You identify with Louis XIV. Even in a perverse way, you might even identify with Cesare Borgia. You will, you will kind of feel something about the con artists that I use in, in the book, and it's on and on and on. So I'm trying to envelop you, the reader, in this kind of world of power and alter how you think about it from the inside out. So there has to be several dimensions. It can't just be this flat book in your hand with text that you read. It has to like infiltrate your mind, infiltrate your defenses. That is power. Machiavelli uh, wrote his book in Prince around 1514, somewhere around there. And people are reading it to this day. You know, It has had immense influence. It's had this influence because he wrote in that dimensional way. He told these stories. He made it kind of strong. He used the language that I I didn't imitate exactly, but I imitated the overall concept of it. But his book has lasted because he didn't just write a book. he, He created this phenomenon, this world that you enter. So that was sort of, that was my mentor. That was my paradigm. That
0: was the pattern I wanted to follow. But one thing you do that's different from him, as you mentioned, The Prince is a very short book. Part of the idea of your book is that there are so many stories and so much history and so many examples of each of these 48 concepts that that in itself, you could drown in this book. Like there's so much material. What gave you the idea to, I mean, I've seen other people now mimic your style over the years where they talk about some historical concept and they give stories like, Oh, so and so. Back in 1765, George Washington was having yeah, a yeah. problem, and blah blah blah. But, but you really are able to get so many concise stories in here. What was the thinking there uh, in terms of the quantity?
1: Well, um, it's quantity and it's quality. So the quantity, of is, course, the quality is assumed. Well, the the, the qual the quantity comes from the fact that. Here I am, a person, 38 years old, when I start writing the book more or less, I've never had power in my life. I've always been kind of on the middle level. I never held a job more than 11 months. I was always the, out, the guy outside looking in, observing people with power. I was not Henry Kissinger. I was not a famous movie producer or anything like that. So how can I write a book about power? People might laugh at me. They might say, what are your qualifications? My father would say, Robert, you, you don't have a, a PhD in this. You sure you can write that book? Well, my dad was a very nice person. So, you know, he he was on to something, though. So it was a concern. So I had spent many years being a, very, a researcher in Hollywood. And I had had honed those kind of skills in journalism and in, in college, et cetera. And so I'm very adept in using libraries for research. So my idea was to ground this book in reality so it's not just some 37-year-old who's never had a position of power, who's just you know spewing nonsense. I had to ground it in reality. So that meant ancient cultures to show that these things are timeless. I had to include Asia, stories from China and Japan. I had to include stories from Africa. I had to include stories from the Arab world. I had to make it international all periods of time, all cultures, etc that's a massive task but when i when you put all that together, then you have to say, this is something that's human. it transcends the moment it it's twenty it's nineteen ninety eight when the book was out, but it's also something that was real six hundred b c and then you see it's also Universal covers all cultures. So having that pastiche of all those different cultures and periods and all stories, also from every particular angle. So I have artists, I have generals, I have political leaders, I have criminals and con artists, you know, I have art dealers, I have chess players. So coming from all these angles, all those periods, all those cultures says, this book has the feel of reality you know, and that's, that was sort of the task that I, I gave myself. Now I was younger and I had more energy then. So I was able to do now. I, I still do the same thing, but it takes me so much longer to do just like your, your chest problem. But,
0: but it's interesting because I think with age, the ability to recognize common patterns in different historical situations probably increases, you know, it's not a math problem. It's kind of an experience problem. And So like the way you weave in, you know, like in one chapter, the same chapter will include some story about Roosevelt, some story about Cleopatra, some story about Borgia, all to make the point that these people cleverly used, manipulated other people to do what they wanted because if they had done it, they would have been perceived negatively by the population as opposed to the way they ultimately did it. This is in the chapter on basically using other people to do your be be as clean as possible don't get your hands dirty and which is one of the 48 chapters but but there's this sense of validity when you show all these stories i feel like i'm getting smarter and so part of the reason i like the book is you're making me think i'm smarter by reading it
1: well yeah and um you know I've, some of the most satisfact satisfactory um feedback that i've gotten is I remember uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, a, a librarian at the Dade County Library in in Miami wrote to me, and it's in an inner city area. Most of the people that go to that library were African-American. He said, there were kids there like 10 years old who would come in or probably a little bit older and they would read the book. And suddenly they were getting turned on to history and they wanted to read about Julius Caesar. and They wanted to read about Haley Selassie and they wanted to read about... Cleopatra, etc. So I've had a lot of people who aren't normally readers of history get excited and become students of history. And a lot of it comes from the fact that history can be a very dry subject. It can be a very dull subject because academia generally kind of deadens anything that it touches, I, I believe. Whereas, and I'm writing right now for my new book a whole hi- a chapter on my relationship to history, but history shouldn't be like that. History was people who were alive, who were facing dramatic moments, who were living in everyday situations, who were who had insecurities. They could be just as neurotic as people in the 21st century. They had problems. They were narcissists. So they were living in the moment. They were alive, and history doesn't. A lot of books don't don't come from that. They don't express that. They, they describe it as if they're just these dead people they have facts and theories, etc. But we humans aren't theories. We're not just these grand patterns in history. We're living individuals. So when I write about Roosevelt, or I write about Borgia, or I write about Julius Caesar, I'm trying to say they're human beings. They're not the, necessarily these legends. They're facing dramatic situations in which they could lose and they, and loss for them means death. And I wanted to draw you into the drama of history. And history to me should be the most exciting subject of all to just realize that our past includes some of the most insane things that have happened, things that just absolutely blow your mind. I'm describing in my current book the, uh, the uh, conquest of Mexico of Aztecs by Cortez. And I'm describing when they first arrive there, arrive at the city of Tenochtitlan, which was what Mexico City was. The Spaniards are going, oh my God, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life, this city. I'm like dreaming. I don't believe that it's real. And these are the actual accounts of the people, the conquistadors. And I go on to describe what that city looked like. It's, it's like something from a fairy tale. It's like something from a dream. History has all of these kinds of stories into it. It's not a dead subject, it's something incredibly sexy, incredibly seductive, incredibly alive. So that's that's sort of the attitude
0: I bring to it. I think also what makes it really stand out in this book is that the book is not called a history book. It's called the 48 Laws of Power. Yeah. So I think yeah. so I pick this up and I think, oh, well, I'm gonna be a powerful person after I read this. So I'm but I'm learning about. How to have power in my own life? How to have more agency in my own life by reading about some guy named Cao Cao in China, you know, six thousand BC China or whatever it was, and and all these incredible historical stories that I had no idea about. And I think, oh, that applies to me. I'll let Jay do my dirty work instead of me doing it, or, or get other people works.
1: to do the work and take credit for it. Law number seven.
0: Yeah, well, that was that was interesting too. Like there's a, a very keen sense that you always have to know where you are in the hierarchy to know which, how to use different laws. Like Henry Kissinger wasn't the president. And if he out, there, there's a lot of warning in this book. If you outshine the, the person higher in the hierarchy, you're dead.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, people often say um, a criticism of the book, and I'm open to criticism of anything that I write. But one thing they'll say is, some of the laws contradict each other. You say court attention at all costs, and then you say other laws have to do with kind of disguising yourself and not being so out there. Is that a contradiction? Well, as you rightfully point out, everything depends on context, who you are. I'm writing a book for everybody. So some people, if you're 23 years old and you've just entered a workplace, you don't want to outshine the master. You have so much to lose. You're going to be fired. It's a common mistake. But if you're 38, 39, you're ahead of a company, et cetera, then you, you have, you're in a much different circumstance. And I make that point in the book that the problem with people with power is they, they, they think in these large general terms and everything depends on the particular circumstance. You have to be able to think for yourself. You have to be able to think in the moment. If you entered a chess game, With everything mapped out in advance, you would lose. You have to be a little bit alive to the moment. You have to see who your opponent is, what they're doing. So sometimes one strategy will work. Sometimes another strategy will work. It's not like this cookie cutter thing where every law must be followed to the T. What is the last law of the book? The last law of the book is called assume formlessness. And the idea is take everything that I've written in this book and just throw it out and be in the moment, and be formless, and adapt to the situation, to be like water, like Bruce Lee said, and just kind of flow with the moment, and don't be stuck on these particular laws. I kind of contradicted my whole book in Law 48, and each law has what I call a reversal. Mm. You might want to do the reverse of this law, because life isn't the static little game. It's a very fluid thing, One strategy, one moment will lead to disaster and another moment will be perfect. So get rid of this mentality a lot of people have that everything has to be this straight category. You're a terrible strategist if that's how you think. You have to be able to adapt to everything that happens to you.
0: You know, this whole concept of using these laws of power, depending on where you are in the hierarchy, the way you were just talking about it reminds me of basically the definition of talent. So you have to have enough self-awareness to fuel your talent. So you you are better than the people who are just following some other example or doing something by rote, or they have it all mapped out like, like, like take Talleyrand. As an example, he's a, a character that kind of threads his way through the book, and he was a—I don't know how you describe it—an advisor to Napoleon and others in the various stages of the French government. He was very talented, knowing exactly where he stood in every single hierarchy he yeah. seemed to be in, and and that that really is—that's a difficult thing to do because sometimes people think they're higher in the hierarchy, or sometimes they think they're lower in the hierarchy.
1: Well, it it all comes down to self-awareness and observing and and just thinking and being alive in the moment and not being caught up in the past. Tali Ron was what we would call an opportunist. And he saw everything around him as an opportunity. So probably some things we wouldn't want to necessarily imitate in Tali but he, he didn't really have any political convictions. He would assume the convictions that suited the moment, the political moment. There was Napoleon and the revolution, he became a revolutionary. Then when Napoleon became an emperor, he became noble and and royalty. And then when the king returned, he was now in favor of the king. But he was aware of each situation and how it changed. And the problem that a lot of people have, so this is something that comes from Machiavelli. And I noticed this in a lot of leaders, a lot of people who attain power. They kind of hit a wall. And they can't get past it. And I see this in almost everybody that I deal with in my consulting with powerful people. You reaches a level of power through one particular quality that you have, whether it's arrogance, whether it's in supreme confidence, whether it's sheer aggressiveness, whether it's being very seductive and influent and and, and persu you know, excellent powers of persuasion or eloquent, etc. You reach your power through this one thing that is a quality that you have that's very strong. And now you have this, pa- this position and you've reached a new level in the hierarchy, as you say, and what brought you there is no longer relevant, is no longer a powerful quality. You have to adapt. And Machiavelli said that this is what undoes a lot of people that cannot adapt to the moment. And if he were to craft a perfect leader, it'd be somebody who would alter with each circumstance. So it's a common phenomenon in military where a lieutenant, a soldier will rise to a position of power in the, in the military back probably a couple hundred years ago. And then suddenly they didn't know how to adapt to their new position and they were absolutely useless. People who reach a certain level. I know one guy I consulted with, he worked in a, in a brokerage firm. He was an incredibly successful trader, et cetera. He was a salesman, basically. He got promoted to a management level and it all fell apart because he didn't know how to manage. All he knew was how to sell. And I worked for a company, American Apparel, where the guy was this incredible entrepreneur, Dove Charney, very charismatic, very powerful, very aggressive. He created this incredible um, empire, American Apparel, with stores all over the world. But he couldn't organize it. He couldn't manage it. He was not good dealing with people because he only knew one, he only had one gear in life. And I kept trying to tell him, you've got to adapt, but he wouldn't listen to me. And so the lesson for people in the world today is your, your, your circumstances are always changing. You might rise up in, in the hierarchy. You might fall down. You have to adapt your mind to where you are, to the circumstances that you're facing. You have to adapt your mind to the world as it is, so your industry. I, I, my work is in publishing. Publishing is changing by the moment. To publicize a book now in 2023 is completely different from how you publicize a book in 2018. So you have to be alive to how everything in the world is changing in the moment. You can't be stuck in the past. You can't be stuck in a moment. You know what, what brought you to success and power. You have to continually adapt.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's interesting that you also have examples of people who who were brilliant, but couldn't adapt to their circumstances or didn't understand the circumstances quite correctly. So like you talked about the difference between, uh, Tesla and Thomas Edison, and I really didn't understand the level to which Tom Edison wasn't really a technologist and was more just a a businessman slash salesman and Tesla was a true technologist who didn't really understand business at all and was too trusting. And I want, you know, and, and he kept falling into the same traps, whether it was with Edison or Westinghouse or JP Morgan, like what could someone like that have done to sort of adapt a little better? Or, or do you think he was just incapable? Maybe he was so good at his technology it, it gave him an inability somehow to to read people.
1: Yeah, um, I think uh, you know some people, a lot of people who are very talented, who are very creative, either in sciences or in the arts, can be very naive. And I definitely fall into that category. I was a very naive person when I entered the work world for quite a long time. I still have a little a little bit of that seed of naivete in me. And um how so? What's an example? Of what? Of you being naive w- well, in the industry. Law number one, never outshine the master. I violated that law once and twice, and possibly a third time, which I'm not sure of. Of course, it was before I wrote the book, but um I was aware, you know, I was trying really hard to please people. I had a job, for instance, on a television show as a researcher, and essentially The more stories that got produced from your research the better you were obviously there was like a hard fast metric for it and i was by far i don't mean to brag because i'm not good at a lot of things but i was good at this one thing i had by far the highest number of stories that were being produced and so i thought well you know that gives me a lot of confidence i can almost do anything i want i kind of dressed you know, this is the 90s. I kind of dressed in a grunge way. I didn't really care what I looked like. When we had meetings, I wasn't really paying deep attention. Anyway, um, I ran afoul of, of my boss and I got fired. Essentially, I had developed an attitude thinking that I was greater. I was so good that that was what was mattered. But what mattered was you fit into a group. People have egos. So that person that fired me probably thought, this, this young kid thinks he's better than I am. He's after my job, et cetera, et cetera. I made her insecure and therefore I suffered. And so I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware that people could be political. I wasn't aware that people had these egos. And early on in my career, when I, when I was in New York, when I was working for magazines, I made a lot of mistakes that way. I didn't I didn't have this radar that goes, that person you're dealing with They're insecure, they're your boss, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to kind of tailor what you do and what you say according to what you gauge as their insecurities. So I was naive in that sense. I had all of these ideas coming from college that what mattered was just being good at what you do, being creative, et cetera. But
0: no, you have to be political in this
1: world. So I was naive that way.
0: Do you think you increased your skills in this area or do you think researching this book increased your skills, like what, what snapped you out of it? I I, I got better
1: out of it as I, as I suffered, as I made mistakes and I learned from my mistakes and I analyzed them, I was progressively getting better. And then, you know, I've always been very observant of people. So as I said, I never really had power, but I was always kind of watching them. But I had blind spots, which is one thing that I revealed here now. So I wasn't perfect in my ability to observe, engage where people were. So I was always pretty good, but I had some of these blind spots. And one of those blind spots was thinking, I'm so creative, I'm so superior to everyone that I can just get away with things. And that's a terrible, terrible mistake. And yes, in writing the books, obviously I've upped my game, you know, and I, it's not going to be easy to trick me or manipulate me now that I've written the book, obviously, because I I can see through anything a mile, 10,000 miles away. And people still, who I've hired to work for me, or other people, they still think, they still try and play games with me. And they don't realize that I wrote the book on that. You can't really fool me at this point, you know.
0: You know, it's interesting you used the phrase blind spots, because I was almost thinking as I was rereading this book that it's a, it is a book about blind spots because there, there is no manipulation without someone being blind to the machinations of another person. And in each case, whether it's someone who's very powerful being, um, persuaded by someone less powerful, like, like a Talleyrand persuading Napoleon, or in the cases of, a, you know, someone trying to impress Louis 14th. Louis XIV, but then outshining him, so getting killed. Like in each case, all these people do have blind spots. And that's when you fall into the hole of the blind spot is where trouble occurs. Yeah, I tell a story. One of my favorite stories in the book
1: involves a very famous con artist named Count Victor Lustig, uh, who nobody knows exactly where he came from, but he operated in Florida in the United States. And one time he decided to con Al Capone, now that takes real cojones, if you know what I mean. To be, yeah. you know, if he catches on that you're trying to con Al Capone, you're going to be, you know, wrapped in cement and thrown into a river. But he went to Al Capone and he goes, Mr. Capone, you give me $50,000. Uh, he presented himself as this incredible, um, you know, business person. You give me $50,000. I'll be able to double it for you in three months. Okay. And Al Capone goes, I don't know, but the guy seems so confident. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Why not? You know, I've got the money, so he gave it to him. And then three months later, he comes to Al Capone's office and he goes, "Mr. Capone, I'm really sorry. It didn't. It didn't pan out the way I did. The money is lost. I feel absolutely terrible. I, I, you, you trusted me, you know, and it was, and I felt so honored that you trusted me, and I failed." And is there anything I can do for you to pay, to make up for this? And Al Capone goes, well, I appreciate your sincerity, uh, Mr. Lustig, And don't just let it go. It's all right. We'll just forget about it, okay? All right. But I won't do business with you again, but just forget about it. Okay. Well, that that was the con, was those $50,000. And the way he conned him was his sincerity. And by buttering up to him, because I, I left out part of the story, which he was flattering, Mr. Capone, how smart he was, how great he was. And so he knew Al Capone's weak spot, which was he thought he was a tough guy, and here he was appealing to his softer side. So to give Al Capone the chance to be noble and go, ah, that's all right, I'll forgive it, was incredibly appealing to his ego. And Victor Lustre was a master of psychology, and he knew that, even though he might be killed more likely he'll either he'll ask for some of that money back. All right. I'll, I'll just give it back cause I have it. Or he'll forgive me. I have nothing to lose. And so, you know, the con game worked because even the most evil, the most violent man on the planet has a blind spot. The need to be flattered, the need to feel noble and, and better
0: than what he was. Yeah. You have a similar story. Um, it's, it's not a, Khan per se, but about Genghis Khan. So here's a person who basically destroys everything in his path, but he has this one advisor who has figured out how to persuade him to keep different cities alive and and, and so on. And, and, you know, another example where someone lower on the hierarchy is able to manipulate and persuade someone much more powerful. Like he might, this person might not have had the skills to be a Genghis Khan, he had the skills to manipulate a Genghis Khan. Well, he knew
1: that it's a law about self-interest. Instead of appealing to people's sense of generosity or morality in, in all cases, you want to appeal to their self-interest. And he understood that Genghis Khan was that kind of person. If you can show me what I can get out of it, I'll do what you want. So he basically persuaded him that if he annihilated the city, if he killed one million people, as he often would do when he destroyed a a, a civilization or or an empire. You're going to lose this, this, and this. It's going to hurt you in the end. And he gave very rational reasons for it. So he said, you need to preserve this particular place because in the long run, you'll you'll be able to get so much out of it. I don't remember the exact details, but he appealed to his self-interest. And so the book is designed, if you read all of the examples, to give you so many patterns in your head of possible let's just uh, compare it to chess patterns of moves that you can make in life depending on your circumstances sometimes it's that person you're dealing with all they think about is what's in it for me all right you tailor your effort at persuasion for what's in it for them but at the same time what's in it for them is actually what's in it for you you know you'd be clever um Or sometimes it's appealing to people's noble sense of self, making them feel like they're a king or or an emperor by by how you frame it, et cetera. Sometimes you have to be really aggressive and intimidate people. Other times you have to use the surrender tactic and make yourself look weak so they don't, so they, they take you for granted. And then when they let their guard down, then you attack them. Each circumstance in life requires a particular law, a particular way of thinking.
0: That's to me what power is, the is person who can do that. And it's also very interesting what you say about the influence of time in the sense that time actually, like a past history with somebody, is almost worthless when you're trying to persuade them. So, so you have the story of Athens. It might have been in the, even in the same chapter as the Genghis Khan story. The story of Athens trying to decide which city to partner with and one city approaches Athens and says, hey, we've been friends forever. We've had a history, choose us. And the other city says, look, we hate each other, but let's be blunt, our combined navies will destroy Sparta. And that's the city that Athens went with.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, the, the Athenians were very practical people. I mean, they created a democracy and they, they, they thought of themselves as superior to other cultures but they had this very machiavellian side. They were very practical people. They were great business people. They had inc- they were merchants. It was a commercial city. They were seamen. They were they were they were very fluid in their thinking as opposed to the Spartans, right? And so they were very open to an appeal that would in- increase their security and their power because they lived in a very insecure world. So I tell people when you're trying to get a more powerful person on your side, which this small island was trying to do with the great Athens. Don't try and say, you know, uh, you've d- I've done favors for you in the past. You need to do this for me. Or this is what, you know, I- I'm really great. I can do all these really wonderful things for you. Instead, tailor your argument, your attempt at persuasion at exactly what they need, what is in their self interest, what will make them look better what will make them more productive, what will make them more money, what will give them more success in life. Nobody can resist that. If somebody came to me instead of saying, Robert, I have brilliant ideas. I can be your best assistant you ever had, which people do if they said, Robert, I can save you time. I understand that you're probably way overworked and you can't deal with all these things going on right now. I'm going to literally save you time by doing this, 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 I will organize your life. It'll be hard for me to resist. I'm not asking people to do that. Please don't get me wrong. (laughs) But if instead, if you appeal to what people need, what their weakness is, and the weakness most people have in the world today is time. They're just overworked. They don't have time for all these little details that they're facing. So be strategic in life. That's what it comes to. Just don't be all about your ego and about who you are and how great you are. Be strategic and think about the
0: other person and the circumstances and what will get you what you need. You know, one thing. One thing I notice in all, in all of your books is you rarely write about yourself. I sort of feel like there's there's two m- main styles of nonfiction that I really enjoy. There's what I literally call in my house the Robert Greene style. Which is kind of making these different, talking about these different concepts through tons of really great historical examples, and then there's almost the what I'll call the Charles Bukowski story the yeah, style, yeah. the the dirty realism of like he just talks about himself and gives his opinions throughout these outrageous stories about himself that are more or less true, and you've you've never really written about yourself at all. But I know you have many interesting stories. Is there a reason you don't write about yourself?
1: Well, I appreciate the Charles Bukowski style of writing very much so. And there are people who are very brilliant at it. Um, I guess it's, it just doesn't fit me. I've always felt, it's. I don't know, um, I think it's because I had so many years of failure in my life. And, and I'm being realistic about that. By the time I wrote The 48 Laws of Power I was essentially pretty much a failure. I had had 50 60 different jobs, I couldn't stay at one more than a few months. I was never really made that much money. I tried many things and I failed at being a screenwriter, I failed really being a good journalist, I failed at writing novels. So built into me it was I was kind of beaten up. You know, and so I thought a slight inferiority complex like Who am I to write a book about power? Who am I to write a book about seduction or warfare and strategy? Okay, well, if I wrote about myself, it just wouldn't feel right. And so I I don't feel comfortable in just using personal examples because I don't think they have weight behind them. Whereas, so things in the moment, in the present, are very hard for us to gauge. It's very hard to say that Elon Musk is this incredible genius or Elon Musk is this incredible failure. In 30 years, we will know very definitely what he was and history will be written on the subject because they will understand the context, they will understand how things play out. So if I write about my little personal stories about you know, things I dealt with, like I mentioned when I got fired, it kind of makes the, the idea sort of trivial and banal and it just seems like it's just personal. Whereas if I talk about the same idea with Louis Fourteenth and a man who outshone Louis XIV and gets thrown in prison for the rest of his life, well, then the reader goes, wow, yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's exciting. I can understand that. So I just don't feel like my personal stories rise to the level of something that's, that, you know, I don't mind talking about them in podcasts, but I'm trying to write books that are going to last for 50, 100, 200 years, and writing about my little personal experience,
0: they don't seem large enough. They don't seem mythic, you know. But since the age of thirty-eight, though, you've gone on this adventure. This, you know, you've become this massive best-selling author. You're, you have, you are the person who's written the books on war, seduction, power. You know, you co-wrote a book with Fifty Cent. Uh, you know, his his take on the, the, you know, power and you've had, I mean, you, like you've mentioned before, you've consulted with major companies, like when, after this book was published, when did you realize your life was changing because of this book?
1: Well, I think the the real wake up moment for me was about four months later, I got invited to Italy of the Italian version of the book had just come out. It was my first real uh, international book tour, and I get there and like I'm wined and dined. I'm taken to the island of Capri, which if you've ever known, it's just incredibly beautiful. I had paparazzi like taking photographs of me as I emerge out of the out of the mm-hmm. out of the water, you know, out of the Mediterranean. You know, I'm eating in these fancy restaurants, and then I'm taken to Rome, where I meet a man named Andreotti, who used to be the president of Italy, who had written a, a review of the 48 laws of power because he's considered like the most Machiavellian politician in Italian recent politics. You know, Jesus Christ, I, I compared it to like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Disneyland where it takes you through this like hallucinogenic drug experience where you're going through all these little things and you're like eight years old and you go, whoa, this is insane. It was like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Because I had nothing like that ever happened in my life before. So that was when it started to go, hmm, something here is changing. And then slowly, as like a year later, I read that Jay Z quoted the book in a Playboy interview. I started seeing that it's infiltrated the hip hop world. So it's entering popular culture. That was like another kind of second revelatory
0: moment. So it had these little moments along the way. I'm just curious. Did ups and downs still continue for you, but in a, in a different way? Like, you know, what, what were some down moments? Yeah, I mean, uh, when The Art
1: of Seduction came out, uh, it literally came out two days after 9 11. Mm. And um, nobody was interested in my book, and rightfully so. But it was like, oh my God, you know, my second book is out and nobody's going to write about it. Very selfish of me. You know, I must admit that, you know, it's natural that people feel that way and I'm admitting something bad, but I, I I understood it very quickly. But I was very worried. But then the other one came when I was doing the 50 Cent book. Um, I was so intimidated by him that I thought this book has to be about fifty. And so I, I spent months tagging along with him and looking at his business and everything. And I wrote a good portion of the book. Um kind of following his examples. And it was mostly just focused on him. And then, like, um, as I was nearly nearing the end of it, the publisher of that book, Simon & Schuster, I believe at the time, they canceled the project, ostensibly because we were too late in delivering it. But I think they didn't think it was very good. And um, somebody else, another publisher at Harper's, came in and said, I will take over this project, but Robert, I have to tell you something. And he said, honestly, this isn't the right kind of book that you should have been writing. It should be more about you and your way of thinking and not so obsessed with 50 and everything that he's ever done. It should be a book that kind of reflects my way of thinking. You have to change the whole thing. You've spent a year writing this thing. You have to throw it away. You have to do something else. And on top of that, You only have eight months or nine months to to finish it. Whoa. First of all, blow to my ego. Me, who's written three bestsellers. Yeah, I failed, and it's true, and he was right. I had to admit that that I was wrong, but it was a very depressing moment. And then to realize that I have to go get a whole new approach to it, and then I have only so much time to get it done. That was a moment that said, you're not as great as you necessarily think you are. You can make mistakes. And you made a mistake. So be more aware of it. Don't don't let your ego get involved in this kind of thing. Although in this case it was the opposite. I I was trying my ego was like going down and instead of asserting itself more in this particular in this particular
0: project. And what's the what's the new book you, you've mentioned you're working on? What's that about? Well, um, it's it's many
1: it's a book about what I call the sublime, and um, in the tenth chapter of the fifty cent book uh, I talk about it, and in the eighteenth chapter of the laws of human nature I talk about it um, in relation to our mortality and death, and so I've talked. I've, it's something I've wanted to be writing for for seventeen years, but I got sidetracked by other projects. Um, I've been thinking about it, and I've put it in other books, but. Essentially, the idea is that um, we live in a world that's that's kind of limited. Human beings live in a world that are, that are conventional, that have certain codes of behavior. And I, I compare it to a circle. And inside that circle are everything that you're supposed to think, ways you're supposed to behave, ideas you're allowed to have, you know, behavior that's acceptable. That circle won't look the same, won't be the same as it was in ancient Egypt. They won't have the same codes of how to think, how to behave, but there's still a circle because we're very conventional. We try to order human life according to these codes and conventions. Well, the sublime is everything that lies outside that circle. What we're not supposed to think about, patterns, ideas that we're not supposed to entertain, behavior that we're not really supposed to have. And when you tell somebody This isn't really what is acceptable. This isn't really what you're supposed to think about. It immediately stirs the desire to go beyond those limits because that's who human beings are. We have this perverse streak in us. And so the ultimate thing outside that circle is death itself. Like, we don't know what death is. Nobody knows what it's about. But to feel it, to go outside and to actually touch upon it, a near-death experience, is like an insanely sublime moment. It teaches you so much. It makes you realize that the world is not what you think it is. 50 Cent had that moment when he got shot nine times and nearly died. He had that kind of epiphany when he was lying in the hospital bed and he thought he was dying. And so five years ago, I had a stroke. I came this close to dying myself. And I had a, not the same, but a, a kind that kind of experience. And so I thought, well, this is this is my moment. I have to write the book now, because I had just written a chapter two months earlier about death and the sublimeness of it, and here and here it actually happened to me. So somebody out there, some fate, some God, is telling me that this is the moment to write the book, um, because it's it's now it's like something deeply personal, deeply emotional, deeply visceral to me, and um, the thing is. When I first conceived of the book, probably about 2006, it's a subject that fascinates me. I was going to like jet all over the world. I was going to go to the Gobi Desert. I was going to climb mountains. I was going to go to Tierra del Fuego. I was going to swim with dolphins. I was going to have all these sublime experiences. And now since I had the stroke, I can't do any of that. Right? I'm very limited in what I can do. I can barely walk outside my house. So I have to make this book about what's inside your head. I have to make the sublime an experience that you can have, even if you're disabled like I am, even if you can't go to the Gobi Desert, even if you can't even go down to San Diego for God's sake, because it's in your head, it's 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 an internal experience that will change you. And it can happen just looking at your pets, it can happen just listening to music, it can happen reading a book, it can happen anywhere in the city that you live in. It's forced me to make the book about that. And so each chapter in the book it's about an element that lies outside that circle. Some of it has to do with our relationship to the cosmos and the universe and the Big Bang theory and things we've learned. A lot of, there's a lot of science in this book. Some of it has to do with evolution how insane it is that you and I, James, are talking on this call right now. When a mere ten thousand years ago, which is nothing in the course of history, we were basically Neolithic, Neolithic people. Nothing like this could. Have, it's just so improbable that this has happened the way it has happened uh there's you know a chapter about the brain and how it operates and how, how our brains kind of create our reality and stepping outside that chapter about childhood chapter about animals chapter about love one about history which is the one that i'm currently writing so each chapter there are going to be 12 of them covers something that's outside that circle
0: so like for instance when you write about history what, what do you point out as sublime? Like, what's an example? Well, I kind of mentioned it um, when I said, when I talked about
1: Tenochtitlan and that city, which has completely disappeared. So when the Aztec, when the Spaniards, the conquistadors destroyed the Aztec civilization, they burned everything down to the ground. There's not one single piece of architecture remaining from that. There's a few scattered sculptures, etc., which you'll find in the museum in Mexico City, and some literature. But basically, the whole civilization was wiped off this planet. And yet, it's the most insanely incredible. Um, if So people who lived there just thought it was normal, thought it was real. But for the Spanish people who went there and saw it, first of all, they were kind of terrified by the human sacrifices. So they had a kind of, a repulsion and attraction to this culture. But aesthetically, sensuously, it was the most insanely wonderful thing they had ever seen. They never got over that experience, right? So history contains those moments and I'm trying to show you that I call history uncanny. And if you know the, the definition of uncanny, it's a mix of things that are familiar and unfamiliar, like in a dream. So in a dream, people are kind of familiar, but they're acting differently. They're they're familiar, but they're not, they're doing things different. That's what makes a dream so strange and weird and compelling. If everything was familiar, a dream wouldn't be interesting. If everything was strange, it wouldn't draw you in or, or, or stick with you. But that mix of things is like a dream is what is so compelling. History is like that. The people are different. The culture is different. How they were thinking, how they dressed, how they smelled, how they the food they ate. But then there's something familiar about it. There's something about the human experience that has never changed. That mix of things is like a dream. And so when I enter ancient Babylonia, when I try and enter like the world of Paleolithic our ancestors or Ch- uh, the Chinese city in, in ninth, tenth century, I have that feeling like I'm entering a dream, like it's It's almost too fantastical to believe that this is actually part of our heritage. So history is completely sublime. We don't look at it that way, which is what my chapter is about. I'm trying to alter, reverse Mm -hmm. your perspective. It's not a dead thing. It's something that's very, very alive.
0: And do you think having the stroke and, and kind of forcing you to be not as physical has opened even vaster new vistas for yourself in terms of finding the sublime in in the everyday things around you? Yes, it does. Because, you know, what am I going to do? First
1: of all, when I write a book, I have to to live it in some degree. I have to feel it inside of me. I can't just write about things that are abstract. And so I have to have some of these experiences that I'm writing about. And so it's forced me to find those moments. You know, so if I write about Animals, uh, because I have a very long, deep relationship to the animal world. It's something I've always been attracted to, and I wrote about our relationship to animals and some amazing stories. I now I have to when I look at birds, I never look at them at the same way because of this story that I wrote. Or when I look at my own pets that we have in our house here, um, I have to bring that kind of awareness to it. Um, then when I'm writing about history, I, I can't go. I can't go to Rome and look at the ruins there and feel it in the moment as I planned to when I wrote was writing in 2006. I have to do it in my head. I have to do it in my armchair, and I'm able to do that because I, I have a strategy, and I, and I share that strategy with the reader about how you can make those things happen. You can do it through reading. You can do it through looking at, at images but you have to do it with a certain mindset. So each chapter I have to live through. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a very, it's been, I can tell you one thing. My life is very limited. You know, I can't do the things I used to do. I can't hike, I can't swim. I can't ride a normal bicycle. I have a special bicycle. But those moments and the day after our podcast is over, I have those three or four hours to write. It's the only thing I live for. It's the most magical moment of my day because it, it just like gives me a spark. So yeah, I've had to live this book in a way that I couldn't have done it before my
0: stroke. And when when's the book coming out? When do you think you'll finish?
1: That's the million-dollar question. Um, I'm on chapter eight. I'll be finishing that in a month, and there are 12 chapters. Um, so... If I really get my act together, which is going to be not that easy, I'm hoping it'll be ready in 2025. Not next, not uh, this coming fall, but the fall after that. Well, because books take like nine months to, to go through a system.
0: I, 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 can't wait to, I can't wait to read this one. I remember you talking about it when, and, and also us speaking about it when we spoke about the laws of human nature. But I, it's it sounds uh, it sounds incredible, so I can't wait for it. Well, Robert, as always, I benefit so much from these conversations, and also when I'm preparing for a podcast with you, I and we've had many now. I always go through your books again, and and it's just I get new perspectives each time out of it. Like it's these books have really uh, changed me, and I'm I'm really grateful you you've written them and. And just your writing, also, I, I, I don't want to. You have a very good, blunt style of writing about these historical events. There's, there's, there's almost a poetry in your lack of poetry in how you describe these events. You. It's you're, you're telling it how it is, but it's in a com- very compelling way, uh, and this, the, the storytelling aspect is kind of hidden in how you write it. Uh, as opposed to being very overt about it, if that makes any sense. But, uh, I w I always learn from your style. And again, we spoke about before the podcast, I feel I could, I could, sometimes I read books and I say, oh, he's, this guy's copying Robert green, but not doing it as well. <laughs> and I don't mean to put them down. It's very hard. I think to write like you, but, uh, but I think it created a genre the the way you write. And, uh, I always, I always see that when I, when I read these books, in addition to the usual just vast amount of knowledge and uh, I get from your books so so thank you again I'm really glad you put out this special edition for for one thing it's a beautiful book but another thing gave us another chance to speak and I am going to take you up on your offer to uh, help uh, me a little in this how to structure this this yeah. book it's it's the first time I'm writing a a concept book like this I've written sort of books where each Chapter sort of sort of stands on its own, but but this one has a real cohesive thread, and I have not done that before. Yeah, and I want you um, when we talk about
1: this, I'm going to try and get you to loosen up to think of this book in a way that maybe you haven't thought about it before, mm-hmm. and to not be so tight and be a little more creative with how you approach it. Not at all criticizing your past books, but just no, no, I agree. Great works. It's, it's like it's a new type of book for you and you have to approach it in a new way and I will help you with that. I don't help many people because I'm way inundated with work, but I genuinely believe
0: this could be an extremely exciting book. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and you're right, like thinking about it and talking with you about it, I realize I've been very rigid in how this book has to begin and how this book has to end. And of course that guides the middle as well so but but you're right i've already been experiencing incredible things that are book worthy and i'm not i'm not a 22 year old i don't have to write about how i become you know champion of this or champion of that it's the experience itself has been this incredible adventure
1: yeah And, and, and how you write it is going to be the key to making it compelling for the reader Because just on its own, it's not going to work like that. You have to approach it a certain way. And I can feel it in my head. I'd have to spend time and and discuss it with you. But I can, I have a a sense, uh, as we say in German, a fingerspitzengefühl about how it could be. Um, I'm not going to take time now doing that. But, you know, I just, I think it has to be more of like a story and not in reading this story you're going to learn a lot but i don't want like chapter 1 this is the lesson
0: here chapter 2 this is the lesson here yeah. i want it
1: more loosely structured
0: yeah this is a very good way to think about it it gives me a lot of food for thought so so thanks again robert for for coming on the show and yeah. this the special edition of the 48 laws of power is just a beautiful work of art not to mention the book is a great book but i really just love how you how the book is designed and packaged and, and, uh, it's a, it's a special book. So I encourage people to look at it or get it or whatever they want to do with it. But if you don't get that book, get the first edition, which also is beautiful book. So enjoy. And, and Robert, once again, thanks. And, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, James. I really enjoyed it. I always enjoy it. So whenever you want
1: me, just let me know.
0: Excellent. Me too.